welcome to the Urology COVID Lecture Series podcast, brought to you by the UCSF Department of Urology. In today's episode, we have Dr. Peter Carroll from the University of California, San Francisco, talking about active surveillance for prostate cancer. Well, it's that time. Uh, I'd like to welcome everyone to this uh, COVID-19 uh, lecture on active surveillance. Who would have known three months ago that we'd be in a situation like we're in right now? I hope you're all safe, uh, you and your families. I'm gonna to talk to you today about uh, active surveillance for early stage prostate cancer, the future or the past. Active surveillance is a response in my mind to overdetection and treatment of prostate cancer brought about by widespread and repeated PSA testing that occurred in the early to mid 90s. I also think it's important to realize that the uptake by the urology community of active surveillance helped pave the way for an upgraded assessment by the US Preventive Task Force on early detection of prostate cancer. As you recall, the task force uh, changed the recommendation in 2012 to a grade D recommendation. We saw rates of early detection plummet, and if you may have read uh, recently, the thought is that that may have resulted in increased uh, risk of advanced prostate cancer. So today I'll talk to you a little bit about surveillance. Now, before I do that, I'd like to make an editorial comment that even though I'm telling you here that we overtreat prostate cancer at the same time, I think we undertreat it. I think we undertreat high risk prostate cancer. I'm a very busy surgeon. I continue to operate many days during the week and think that radical prostatectomy or radiation is preferred form of treatment for many men, but it is not the only form of treatment and it does not need to be considered in all men. So the goals of active surveillance are to avoid or delay the cost, functional and monetary of treatment without compromising cancer cure. It's compliant with all North American and European screening and treatment guidelines. It's based on the rationale that initial assessment is reasonably accurate. Monitoring is accurate and identifies subclinical progression at a time that initial treatment options are still available and curative. I want to point out also that, that surveillance, as I'll show you, is about timing of treatment. Do all patients need to be treated right now? It is true that by 10 years, 50% patients on active surveillance will require treatment. The key is can you avoid any side effects of treatment uh, and still treat the patient for cure when that time becomes uh, optimal. So the data I'm gonna show you today is based on our experience at uh, UCSF. I'll refer to a few cohorts towards the other cohorts at the end, but this is based on our experience with about 2,100 men. Uh, the year of diagnosis, the meeting is 2010, but we, I have patients going back to 1990. The age, uh, age of diagnosis is around 62 years old. PSA uh, at diagnosis 5.5. These patients have been followed for a median of 73 months. About 85% of our cohort started out as low risk, about 15% intermediate risk. So we actually accrued UCSF some patients with higher grade cancers. Just to cut to the chase here, this is the upgrade free survival at seven years. So this is patients who were enrolled on surveillance, underwent serial biopsy, and had any uh, change in grade uh, at seven years. So for, for 41% upgrade free survival at seven years. So the majority of patients actually show some change in grade or volume at seven years time. 
If you look at upgrade free survival for 3.3 versus 3.4, now again, you're going from a 3.3 to a 3.4 here, or a 3.4 to a primary pattern 4 or 5, very similar at uh, seven years follow up, about uh, 50 to 60%. Treatment free survival, however, at seven years was 59%, so about 41% of patients required treatment. Now, why the discrepancy between upgrade uh, and treatment? Again, a, a lower treatment rate. Uh, compared to upgrade rate. And the reason for that is here, if we look at the uh, change in greater volume, what I'm showing you here is a, a CAPRA score well, going up or low. And for those who don't use CAPRA, it was a score system developed here at UCSF, a multi-variable risk assessment scheme validated in tens of thousands of patients around the world, predicts biochemical recurrence after surgery or radiation, actually also predicts overall and prostate cancer specific survival. So I'm showing you here is, uh, again, on any, any biopsy, about 17% of patients will have a negative biopsy. Uh, and if you look at change in risk over time, only about 20% of patients have a substantial change in risk over time. So most of the time, if you see a change in volume or grade, it's relatively limited. So that's why not all patients who showed a change in greater volume were treated at UCSF. Some who showed very minor changes in volume or grade uh, actually uh, stayed on surveillance, but about, again, 15% uh, had substantial uh, changes in environment grade necessitating treatment. Uh, so treatment-free survival, again, is, is a little bit uh, more uh, likely in those with low-grade disease compared to higher-grade disease. I'll get into this a bit later when I talk about some of the controversies of active surveillance. So again, if you start out with a 3-4, you're more likely to be treated at seven years compared to those with a 3-3 uh, cancer. The overall survival uh, at seven to 10 years is 96%. Prostate cancer specific survival is 99%. We've had very few people with metastases and most all of these were lymph node metastases and frequently people who were not compliant with uh, surveillance. People who I may have seen 10 years ago really fell off uh, uh, screening and surveillance and came back uh, much later, but about six cases with the metastases. Okay, what about deferred treatment? Outcome after delayed radical prostatectomy. So this is what I'm showing you here, and all, again, this has all been published. The, these are the pathology results in men who underwent delayed radical prostatectomy, and this is based on a cohort of about 460 patients with progressive surveillance who I took to surgery. Uh, about 45% uh, had any adverse pathology, either primary pattern four or five, or T3 disease. As I'll show you a bit later, the overall PSA-free survival, second treatment-free survival was actually quite good. But of these 460 men out of 2,000, a little over 2,000, one went to surgery, about 45% uh, will have any adverse pathology. What about the impact of new technology? A, a lot's change in surveillance. So we've seen the uptake of genomic testing and multiparametric MR imaging um, with time. Now, the, the NCCN recommends uh, genomic testing in those with low and intermediate risk disease or be considered for active surveillance. Actually, in very low risk patients, a so low uh, PSA density, low volume, low grade disease, they tend not to be uh, very helpful, but they can be helpful to discriminate patients in the low and intermediate risk uh, categories. Several tests available, uh, and this is in the NCCN guidelines. All these assays have prognostic value. 
they're not predictive. So they don't predict response to radiation surgery, they have prognostic value. And the, the most common commercial tests are decipher uh, GPS or Oncotype and Prolaris. I think they all predict, here at UCSF, we've actually validated all uh, three of these. And I'm gonna just show you one example, but I could have, I could have chosen any one of those uh, as an example. This is the Oncotype or GPS. Uh, this is a quantitative 17 gene RT-PCR assay. It's, it's uh, done on tissue dissected from the paraffin block. Uh, you can get uh, actually a good reading on maybe one to two millimeters of tissue. It's very remarkable. And these are the categories or the pathways that um, this test was based, uh, based on. And again, this is work that was done here at UCSF in conjunction with the Cleveland Clinic. Uh, what I'm showing you here is important in that if you look at the CAPRA score and you correlate it with uh, GPS, it's actually a weak correlation. And that's very important. If you have a test that correlates with Gleason grades uh, very well, then it's not likely to provide any additional inf information. I review a lot of grants where people want to look at a genomic score and see how it relates to uh, Gleason grade, but you already know Gleason grade. So when you see a test does not correlate with a known predictor, it's telling you that it may be offering some independent prognostic information. Uh, and here on this slide, I'm showing you the likelihood of favorable pathology. These are people who had a biopsy done, was thought to represent low-risk disease, who I took to surgery. So we're testing the hypothesis that the genomic score in the biopsy predicted the likelihood of adverse pathology at the time of radical prostatectomy. Again, predicting that those patients actually were harboring higher risk disease. And this is look likelihood of favorable pathology for a CAPRA zero, again, a very favorable patient, down to CAPRA four here. So the risk of a favorable pathology actually varies between these categories. Now, if you add genomic testing, you can see that in each individual CAPRA score, you further substratify the patients into a higher or lower risk patient. So it's saying for, for these known variables, when you add the Oncotype score, it's telling you how are you higher or lower risk. And when you do this, you can actually increase the number of patients who might be candidates for surveillance. Sometimes the test shows more favorable uh, uh, results, some less favorable results. So we looked at the GPS score, an upgrade on surveillance, and it turns out that the GPS score for every five units in a multivariable model it predicts for upgrading on surveillance. And this again, in the model, we have uh, PSA density, age, and uh, biopsy volume. And when you look at adverse pathology again, in, impact on adverse pathology and PSA relapse, you can say the same thing, that this is PSA relapse after surgery. The GPS score predicts for either adverse pathology or actually biochemical recurrence following delayed radical prostatectomy. Again, these are all multivariable models. This is an important slide because I'm showing you a waterfall plot here. The blue is upgrade and red is no upgrade. And it can show you a similar waterfall plot for PSA recurrence. What this is showing you here is as you increase the GPS score, you actually have a higher risk of an upgrade. But there is no GPS score that completely excludes or predicts progression. So you use this test in conjunction with all other pathologic variables that you're looking at. So again, no single GPS test um, is a yes or no. It, it, it's actually, it's assessing uh, risk further.
So the, some of the concerns about genomic classifiers or tumor heterogeneity, that seems to be less of a problem in, in, in uh, prostate cancer compared to a cancer like renal cancer. Do all patients benefit? As I told you, probably uh, not very low risk patients. I think those in low and favorable intermediate risk patients are probably better candidates for this. That's where you see the most variability in uh, genomic testing. Are they cost effective? What are the long-term outcomes? And of course, there are randomized trials that are testing these hypotheses now. Are there other biomarkers? And they, the, the issue is there are other biomarkers. One's PSA density. Again, uh, PSA density over 0.15 is a strong predictor of progression on surveillance. We've looked at this several times over the last several years. Uh, yeah, again, uh, PSA density below 0.1 is best. But again, below 0.1, between 0.1 and 0.15, and over 0.15, these are all predictive uh, cut points. Very easy to do, um, doesn't require any extra expense, but PSA density is a strong predictor of progression on surveillance. Uh, this is work by Caressa Chu at UCSF, just showing the, uh, uh, sorry for the lightness of these lines here, but to show the impact of a negative biopsy, it turns out that and any uh, single biopsy done over time, about 20% of patients will have a negative biopsy. And again, a negative biopsy, as you'd expect, is a uh, strong predictor of non-progression. If you had more than two negative biopsies, uh, even uh, less likely to, um, to uh, progress over time. Yeah. On the internet, there's a lot of chatter about so-called vanishing prostate cancer, and it turns out that we think the cancers don't vanish, they hide, but we've seen some patients who've had two negative biopsies down the line have a third, fourth, or fifth biopsy, and you'll find cancer, again, usually of low grade. So again, I think this is an artifact of detection, but a negative biopsy is a strong predictor of non-progression. Uh, Pyrad score and upgrade on surveillance. It is true those with a high Pyrad score are more likely to progress on surveillance. When we actually look at Pyrad scores in a model that includes genomic markers, the Pyrad score drops out, genomic markers stay in. But again, high Pyrad score uh, tends to predict for higher uh, risk disease. Uh, we've, uh, Carissa, again, Carissa Chu at UCSF has looked at this, and we've seen that on serial MRI, actually changes in MRI are relatively common. Pyreds 4 or 5 or any increase in pyreds predicts progression over time. So if you go from a pyreds 1, 2, or 3 to pyreds 4 or 5, obviously that predicts progression. Um, uh, but any patient who enters surveillance with a high pyreds score has higher risk, uh, higher risk disease. Again, it doesn't say that that a pyrus score in and of itself should be an indicator for treatment, but it, it may be the patient who will need an early confirmatory biopsy. Similar to, to what you'll find with genomic testing, if you have a patient who seems to be a good candidate for surveillance, but has, a, a, again, an adverse pyrus score, adverse genomics, doesn't mean you need to treat them, but you should, you should at least consider an early confirmatory biopsy. Current controversies with surveillance are what risk categories are appropriate, very low, low risk, low CAPRA scores. What about Gleason 3-4 disease? Is it safe in African-American men and are younger men appropriate candidates for surveillance? A lot of series around the, around the United States or a lot of practices will not consider surveillance in younger patients. It turns out at UCSF, uh, we have a lot of younger men on surveillance. I see a lot of patients who have not completed their families may have had the diagnosis by serendipity. By that I mean had an elevated PSA, had a biopsy, repeat PSA is actually normal, 
or has a, a biopsy for an abnormal digital examination, and lo and behold, the biopsy shows something on the contralateral side. That's what I call uh, serendipity. So we actually looked at this UCSF and published this a, a while back, and um, three and five-year upgrade-free survival are more favorable in younger patients. And actually, we've really known this over time. Uh, younger patients have uh, less adverse features or less aggressive cancers compared to older patients. In fact, older men are more likely to have adverse pathology on delayed radical prostatectomy compared to younger patients. And uh, on a, a multivariable uh, model, um, young men had a, a lower likelihood of upgrade on surveillance. And there's no significant association between younger age and time to treatment or biochemical recurrence. So again, younger patients have slower rates of progression and I think remain good candidates for surveillance if all other features appear to be favorable. Now, obviously, if you have a younger patient, they're more likely to require treatment over time, but in fact, that does not mean that they need to be treated immediately. What about African-American men? Uh, data from two large registries, Capture, UCSF, and Search, showed African-American race was not associated with upgrade or upstage, and there was no significant association between African-American uh, ethnicity and pathologic upgrade, upstage, or positive surgical margins. But I want to point out that there are a few African-American men in the current cohort. So I don't think uh, African-American men should be necessarily treated based on ethnicity, but we do need to disclose that all large North American and European cohorts on surveillance have actually relatively limited number of men um, of African-American ethnicity. This is re recent work, and I apologize for the uh, figures here, but this is recent work from the Canary Consortium of which we're a part of, that so the African-American race is not associated with increased risk of reclassification or treatment on uh, Canary. But again, I want to point out here that there are few African-American men in this cohort and that, um, you know, we did not do admixture studies in these patients. Again, this, this thought that, that uh, when you uh, African-American men, that, that uh, they may be, you know, Caribbean uh, descent and others may have higher risk categories uh, than um, men. So we've... Uh, we, we actually have to be, uh, take these results with caution. But again, I think African-American men are still candidates for surveillance. What about uh, Gleason 3-4 disease? You know, in, in urology, we, we've drawn this line in the sand. We've been, we've held, been hostage by cancer grade. So if you go from a 3-3 to 3-4, it's like falling off a cliff. You go from significant and insignificant to significant disease. But I want to point out that cancer risk is best assessed with multivariable instruments, not a single variable like cancer uh, three, four. Uh, in CAPRA score, going from uh, having a Gleason three, four disease has, uh, adds only one point to a CAPRA score between zero and 10. And as I'll show you, it's actually volume rather than grade alone, which is a predictor of adverse pathology. And when you look at men who want to go immediate versus delayed surgery for Gleason 3-4 disease, the outcomes appear to be very similar. And that's been our experience at UCSF in a large cohort of men who have undergone surgery. So again, I showed you this earlier. So if you take patients with 3-3 versus 3-4 disease, it is more likely that those with 3-4 disease will require treatment at seven years time. And you need to disclose that to patients. Uh, recurrence research, this is actually not, not only biochemical recurrence free survival, but actually second treatment. So the bars are rather high here. So if patients got any second treatment or 
at biochemical recurrence, they were scored as such. And it shows a little difference between PSA recurrence, free survival, delayed radical prostatectomy for those with 3433 disease who are graded over time. Again, look at uh, modeling. It turns out that grade alone does not predict, but it's actually volume. So those with a single core low volume 3 4 disease showed no increased risk of bio progression of biochemical failure afterwards. So when you, you look at 3 4, you really need to look at uh, volume of disease, not just having uh, 3 4 disease. Another very important point, and if your pathologists are not, uh, not doing this, they should, you can actually substratify, at least in grade 4 disease, in different histologic subtypes, expansile cribriform, cribriform, poliform, fuse, glomerulation, and stromal reaction. So when you get a pathology report back, it turns out that these histologic subtypes are strong predictors of outcome, uh, whether it be progression on surveillance or actually recurrence after surgery or radiation therapy. Uh, again, nice work from UCSF showed that cribriform histology, actually expansile cribriform histology, and stromal reaction are associated with higher genomic scores and a higher risk of adverse pathology and likely biochemical recurrence. So again, try and get your pathologist to stratify glucin grade uh, subtype. Uh, and again, this, uh, these, uh, these different subtypes correlate with the genomic score. So again, this is easy information to get, which does not require any additional expense on the patients or the systems um, at all. So active spins of glucin 3, 4, Caution, uh, those with high PSA density, pyres four or five and multiparametric MRI, adverse genomics, uh, GPS, uh, uh, Prolaris or Decipher, cribriform or expansile cribriform histology. And again, this whole issue of volume, so a larger number of biopsy course positive diagnosis tends to predict uh, for progression. I think we need to make active surveillance less burdensome. Uh, you know, we, 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 we need to get away from, you know, standard biopsies every year. And I think we can do this. Again, the patients who you should consider for treatment or early confirmatory biopsy are those who have higher uh, volume, higher grade disease, high genomics, pyreds, four or five, cribriform histology. These patients, we would uh, re-biopsy within six months time, as opposed to patients with favorable PSA density, favorable volume, low-grade disease, favorable genomics, uh, favorable MRI. These are patients we'd reassess at 12 to 18 months. Again, obviously any patient in poor health should be on uh, watch for waiting. I'm seeing a patient later today, age 95. Someone got a PSA on him, it's 33. We'll, we'll actually probably just watch this patient. He's actually in good health, but um, that, that patient, I, I don't think needs uh, advanced imaging or genomics. A less intense uh, surveillance of those with low PSA density, negative biopsy, favorable MRI, and genomics. Again, we're developing, uh, working with many to develop uh, new signatures detected in the urine or serum, which may substitute for biopsy. So we're really trying to get away from a routine biopsy and want to go to a less burdensome surveillance strategies. This work by uh, Peter Lonigan, one of our fellows, which is in press currently, showing uh, which risk factors for biopsy reclassification and surveillance, and actually it's PSA density, uh, biopsy cores, positive, higher genomic scores. These patients are, are, are at risk for early uh, reclassification. It turns out that PSA kinetics 
PSAs are actually very stable early on in surveillance. They, t they tend to play a role when you get out beyond three to five years when they tend to predict for uh, delayed progression over time. Again, PIRA scores dropped out of the analysis here when we had genomic scores in it. But if you're not using genomic scores, uh, PIRA scores would be a predictor as well. Well, UCSF is just one cohort. There are others uh, from uh, Europe, uh, prior study uh, here in the US, Canary, uh, Johns Hopkins, Toronto. It's important to realize that all these cohorts are a bit different inclusion criteria. So Toronto and UCSF tend to be a little higher risk population compared to Johns Hopkins, uh, the European cohorts and Canary studies, but the reclassification, reclassification risk uh, over time uh, is similar, again, between 20 and uh, 40%. Treatment uh, at seven years, again, uh, relatively uh, varying between 50% uh, uh, to a bit higher at 10 years time. Metastases, very, very rare event, again, between 0.1 and 2.8% over 15 years time. I think it's very important for all of you, when you look at these results, try and get a sense of what your cohort looks like. Is it only very favorable patients or do you have some patients with higher risk disease? And then you can interpret these results a bit better. Our practice pattern is changing over time based on surveillance. While this is at UCSF, you know, when we, I'm showing you low, uh, intermediate, and high-risk patients over time, this is a, a radical prostatectomy series. And again, what we're operating on at UCSF now is not low-risk patients. In fact, at UCSF now, at very rare, you'll see a low-risk patient undergoing surgery. That, that, that varies across the country, as I'll show you. Uh, here at UCSF, the only patients undergoing uh, surgery for low-risk disease are generally those with adverse genomics, you know, a BRCA2 patients, things like this. But we actually have gone from treating low-risk patients to treating actually high-risk patients here at UCSF. And if you look at uh, CAPRA clinical risk by diagnosis and surveillance over time, you see here we're, we're actually having more and more higher-risk patients on surveillance at UCSF. These are what I mean by higher risk, generally intermediate risk patients. We have very few high risk patients on surveillance. Nice work by Sam Washington, my, uh, my moderator today, showing you, this is SEER data, showing you the rates of active surveillance in red, uh, surgery in blue, radiation uh, in green here uh, around the country. The highest rates of surveillance actually are here in San Francisco, but you can see actually relatively low rates of surveillance for low-risk patients over time. So we have a considerable variability uh, in the use of surveillance uh, across this country, which is a little bit uh, puzzling and worrisome for me. So when you see variability like this, you'd like to understand it, but we, we see this over time and it's important to look in your community to see where you stack up compared to others. Uh, new developments, I think a couple of things uh, you need to understand here is, uh, you know, 20 years ago, we detected all patients, we treated all patients, then we, wanted, we, we, we continued aggressive screening, but we treated uh, more selectively, so we went to the era of active surveillance. I think where we're moving now is trying to avoid the detection of low-risk disease, so instead of going, having elevated PSA, and I always want to point out to people, if you have a patient with an elevated PSA, the first thing you do is don't get an MRI, you need to repeat the PSA. So you want to validate the PSA is truly elevated. And although you can consider doing a biopsy in a patient with elevated PSA, you can also consider using biomarkers 
that improve the specificity of screening, the likelihood of detecting higher grade disease, and it can be done with both urine and serum biomarkers, and there are several currently available to do this, or multi-parametric MRI. So what we're seeing now is, instead of going right to a biopsy with an elevated PSA, to secondarily screen that patient with uh, serum or urine biomarkers, or an MRI. And there's a lot of discussion right now as if you do the serum markers or go right to an MRI, they suggest that you could actually probably get the, the serum or urine biomarkers first and then consider the multiparametric MRI in higher risk patients that would allow for a targeted biopsy. Work done by, uh, 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 by uh, Claire Delacaya at UCSF and how when, so that even when you use markers of specificity, you'll still detect about, even though you'll decrease biopsy rates by about 20 to 40% by using these tests, you, still about 30% of the patients you detect have low risk disease. So even though you're decreasing the overall cohort of men with low risk disease, you're still detecting such patients. Uh, what I've seen actually now around the world is the, the thought that focal therapy to be used in lieu of active surveillance, either time of initial diagnosis or in those people who progress on active surveillance. Uh, uh, Victoria Fasulo recently uh, looked at this at UCSF. You know, we, rec we recognize that active surveillance can be burdensome for some patients. Active surveillance may not be practical in patients who do not have the local resources for surveillance. And I'm talking about developing countries. You know, in, in China, when I was lecturing in, uh, in November, uh, there, when I gave a talk on surveillance, someone raised their hand, a very well-known neurologist, and said, gee, Peter, that surveillance may actually work well in the United States, but in China, where people come from a long distance to get their care, where there may be not local resources, to do surveillance safely, or where it may not be acceptable for some patients, these patients may be considered for focal therapy. And again, even, even here in the US, 10% of our patients on surveillance who have not progressed find surveillance burdensome. And the thought is that, that um, focal therapy may be less morbid than whole gland treatment. Again, data from UCSF, uh, uh, Dr. Rasulo showed that you, you, don't, you do not wanna make the, the um, decision about focality on a single biopsy. You actually need at least two biopsies before you can consider it. And then actually in the series at UCSF, about 63% of patients uh, who've undergone two biopsies may be considered candidates for focal therapy. And by focal therapy, I'm talking about either sub-hemigland treatment or hemigland treatment. So actually, it, it may be that, that there are candidates uh, for focal therapy that can be gleaned from a, a, a court of men on surveillance. And this work is under review right now. So in summary, I think active surveillance is the preferred form of treatment for men with very low, low risk and selected patients with favorable intermediate risk disease. I do think the new technology, MRI and genomics, appears to make it safer. Its use remains highly variable uh, in the US, and I think urologists have to be very cautious about this. Again, one of the reasons why the task force changed their recommendation for screening from a D to a C is not only based on the fact that they reinterpreted data uh, on the uh, randomized trials, but also because they understood that the surveillance in lieu of immediate treatment was being offered to US men. And I do think that, that active surveillance will be challenged by uh, new forms of focal therapy going forward. With that, I'll close. And I think, uh, Sam, or do we have any questions or are there any questions from uh, those listening?
Yeah, it looks like we have a few questions on the Q&A board. Um, the first was, how do we incorporate MRI into our active surveillance algorithm? So I'll say what we do at UCSF, and I'd also like to acknowledge Sam, Sam Washington, I should have introduced him as a fellow here at UCSF, but I'm proud to say within a month's time, we'll be a faculty member at UCSF. So thank Sam, you. Uh, thank you very much. And he's contributed to a lot of this work right here. So what we do, I think we incorporate MRI, and again, endorectal MR imaging was developed at UCSF over 20 years ago. We've done over 20,000 scans over time and been continuously funded from our work by the NIH over this uh, last two decades time. So MRI is something near and dear to our hearts. We no longer do endorectal imaging. Uh, we do this, this uh, body coil imaging, multiparametric MRI, you know, the, the PIRES definition. Right now we're do, using it in men uh, at the time of diagnosis. So we actually try and do an MR guided biopsy to begin with. MR guidance may compensate for any uh, problem with expertise uh, on the basis of the provider. So we'll do a, an MRI at the time of uh, initial diagnosis. If we see people who appear to be candidates for surveillance who have not undergone MR imaging, we'll go ahead and get it done. So again, to look for, I'm seeing a patient uh, later today on video visit who had a single core of Gleason 3-3 disease, who, but had a high PSA density hadn't had an MRI, we got an MRI, shows a, a, a large anterior lesion, which I think was missed on, on uh, biopsy, so we'll consider uh, early confirmatory biopsy. If you have a patient who uh, has uh, lower disease, low PSA density, we get an MRI, it's, it's favorable, we won't get an early confirmatory biopsy. We'll generally consider repeat imaging at 12 to 18 months with a, a delayed confirmatory biopsy. So that's how we incorporate MR imaging. We do it over time. We don't do it every year. We'll probably do it at 24 months and then make a decision on, on uh, further biopsies down the line beyond the confirmatory biopsy based on their PSA density over time, their PSA kinetics, and their MRI. So if they have a favorable MRI that's maintained over time and they've undergone a confirmatory biopsy, which is uh, which is favorable, we'll consider a delayed biopsy. Uh, next question had a few parts. So one, what would you consider a substantial change in grade or volume in an active surveillance patient? How do you make that determination and what is taken into account? So what we look at is a grade histologic subtype of pattern for and volume. So again, the patients who you could tolerate to be on surveillance with higher grade disease are generally those with limited volume, you know, one or two cores and not multiple cores. If they have multiple cores of three, four disease, these patients have higher risk disease. Any histologic subtype, expansile cribriform, or again, those who have genomic profiling, which is adverse. Uh, if you look at genomic profiling over time, most people's genomic scores will, st will stay uh, actually quite uh, uh, stable over time. We see a small number that actually have increasing genomic scores. Our next question is, what do you do if people have multiple negative biopsies? Do you stop biopsying? Do you just follow PSA? Yeah, if, if they have multiple, I think the first thing is, did you do your best to identify higher risk disease? So I think if you have a negative biopsy, before going to another biopsy, these are patients who should who are good candidates for, uh, 
4K, prostate health index, you know, um, select MDX, so there's a lot of tests can be done. I run the, the NCCN panel on early detection. So if you have a negative biopsy, before going to another biopsy, this is patient should be screened with these tests of specificity and also an MRI. So again, I, I don't think you should do repeat biopsies in the absence of new technology. But if you, if you have a, a favorable MRI and you have a favorable 4K test, I don't think that patient needs to undergo repeated biopsy. You have to have a reason for it. There was a uh, similar question asking the role for MRI-targeted biopsy throughout the course of active surveillance. Is it treated differently or is a patient treated diff differently if they were upgraded on a targeted biopsy but systematic biopsy did not show upgrade? Yeah, this is an important point. Realize that the negative predictive value of an MRI is about 85%. So if you use MR alone to determine whether you did a biopsy, you'll miss about 15% of men with higher risk disease. So if you have a negative MRI, you, should, you need another uh, test, either PSA density uh, or something else for a case score before you don't biopsy that patient. So I think an MRI alone should not be the determination. A negative MRI alone to me, it's not adequate not to do a biopsy. So again, we see that about 15% of patients who are upgraded over time are, are do so outside the target. So again, at least for the first repeat biopsy, you need to do systematic and targeted cores. I am a little worried about oversampling. So if you if your criteria for for early for, for surveillance is based on volume alone, be careful about uh, repeated sampling. If you take two cores from the target, you won't change your outcome. But if you repeatedly uh, target the, uh, you know, you over, you know, you take, uh, sometimes I see people get six cores taken from the target. And if you have a volume threshold, you, you'll frequently exceed it. So again, I, I look at this issue of oversampling. I think it's a real, I think if you take two cores, you're going to be okay. But if you start taking repeated cores from the target, I think you're at risk for what, what I call oversampling. Yeah. And again, be, be mindful of this issue that there may be candidates uh, uh, who, are, who actually have very focal disease. So again, I think when you, when you do this additional biopsies, look at grade, volume, and focality before you make a decision about treatment. And I know we look at PSA density of diagnosis, but uh, one patient, or excuse me, one uh, attendee is asking, can you talk more about PSA kinetics and what your thresholds are? Yeah, I think you have to be careful for PSA kinetics at low, at low PSAs. PSA kinetics only work over many uh, long periods of time. So what we have found is that PSA appears to be very stable early on and only maybe, maybe a marker of progression uh, over time and not initially. So be very careful. You can only set PSA kinetics with use, doing repeated PSA measurements. So if you, if your PSA is rising, you have a PSA that's, that's going up, don't go to treatment right away, get another PSA. So at low PSA values, we see a lot of noise in, in serial PSA testing. So again, it only, only over time with repeated PSA measurements does it, does it appear to be predictive. Sam, is there any, any additional questions from, any, from anybody? Going to check to see. I think we are, that is the it, 
that is the uh, end for our questions. Oh, there is uh, one more that came in. Uh, can you comment on active surveillance and its impact on sexual function? Uh, so what we have found, the, I think the real issue is this, the, the, sexual function in men declines with age. So it's a natural tendency on surveillance to see uh, some change in sexual function, but, but that, that matches a cohort effect of men without prostate cancer. I think one of the questions was, is repeated biopsy impact sexual function? And when we looked at this, we, we did not see that, that a biopsy in of itself had an impact on sexual function. In fact, it was this, the, the, the um, natural decline in sexual function occurs with men over time. But there are other reasons to avoid a biopsy. No one likes it. But we don't think that surveillance itself um, uh, has an impact on function. What I, get, what I hear a lot is, is this issue that if you operate on men who are younger, they do better. And that's true, and, but it is true because they start out better. We've actually looked at this in CAPTURE uh, over time. And it, it turns out that if you look at the, the actual percent decline in function that occurs, it really is no different between younger and older patients. It just, it turns out that younger patients tend to have a better function to begin with. So we don't say to patients, go ahead and get treated now because you're in better health. It's a so-called prophylactic uh, radical prostatectomy. I would not advise that. Younger patients start out better, that's why they do better. But the actual decline, percent decline, is very similar between younger patients and older patients. Can you talk a little bit about diet, exercise, interventions for men on active surveillance and how we incorporate that into our practice? Yeah, a great question, great question. And we've done a lot of work on uh, early, in the early years of Dean Ornish on diet, and now we've gone to diet and exercise. And I think there's a strong rationale for considering uh, dietary uh, changes and exercise changes in, in, in men. One, uh, you know, in this country, we have an epidemic of obesity. And, and so I think, you know, we don't need to use prostate cancer diagnosis as the only rationale for dietary or exercise changes. But I would strongly consider it. And we have a lot of clinical trials now, both for, for diet and exercise. Exercise, interestingly enough, uh, uh, and if you'd asked me 10 years ago, uh, and I'm an avid runner and cyclist, but if you'd asked me 10 years ago to think that, that exercise would have been a, a something we'd do for cancer diagnosis, I would not have expected, but actually there's a strong rationale for this. And actually work at UCSF suggested uh, changes in diet and exercise may, in, in, in population-based studies, work with uh, June Chan and Stacey Kenfield here at UCSF, suggest you may actually decrease recurrence rates by adopting uh, better uh, lifestyle changes. So again, uh, you can go to our website and others, we have PDFs on uh, diet and exercise, but it appears that the, this is something that should be considered. It actually is obviously heart healthy, so when men change their diets, we see considerable improvement overall uh, risk uh, with time, so we would consider it. So generally we would go for a heart healthy diet. We think a comprehensive lifestyle change is more important than any single supplement. Um, but it's a great question and we think a strong role, role for it. And actually, men who adopt a lifestyle intervention are more compliant on surveillance compared to men who are, who are not, who don't adopt a lifestyle intervention. There's one question looking forward asking, uh, where do you see the future of active surveillance in the next five or 10 years? Well, I, I hope it doesn't go away. You know, I, I worry a little bit that, you know, uh, we're, we're judged on how we treat low-risk disease. And if we go back to over-treating low-risk disease, 
we will be judged uh, harshly. But I think we'll have a one. I think we'll see this continued uh, reduction in unnecessary biopsies. Again, so if you take a thousand U U U.S. men and screen them with PSA, about 250 will have an elevated PSA. If you biopsy all those patients, about half will not have cancer. Of the half that do, about 40% have low risk disease. So I think there's a strong rationale to consider markers of specificity. So secondary screening with either urine or serum markers or MRI, I think will become increasingly important and we'll have a steady reduction in, um, in unnecessary uh, biopsies. I think for those, those low risk patients who are diagnosed, I hopefully will consider continuous uh, active surveillance to be refined. I think we'll demonstrate the impact of new technology. And again, this whole issue of focal therapy, I, I wanna be sure we, we use focal therapy in those, we, one, we tested well, because focal therapy studies to date uh, have not been done, in my opinion, very well. But I think there may be a role for focal therapy in some of these patients uh, with time. Perfect, I think that is it uh, about uh, for any uh, questions that we have. Well, feel free any of you to reach out to me, uh, peter.carroll at ucsf.edu. Uh, I look forward to seeing all of you uh, post uh, COVID-19. I wanna appreciate, I wanna say, I personally appreciate the response of the allergic community. We're back in the OR over time. I hope our past will cross in the future. And when I see you next, hopefully I'll have shorter hair because the only thing I'm, I'm looking forward to is opening those barbershops so I can get a, get, a, get a haircut, but please be safe and thank you for all you do on behalf of urology. And Sam, thank you. Thanks for including me. Thank you for listening. We'll talk to you soon. Learn more by visiting our website, urologycovid.ucsf.edu.